Thank you to this week's sponsor, Utah Homicide Survivors. They are a nonprofit in Utah that provides free legal and social services for families of homicide victims statewide. A homicide survivor is the family member of someone who has been the victim of murder. This is messy and heavy work, and I'm so grateful to my friends over at Utah Homicide Survivors who are willing to do it and truly see these families. They have their heart in it. You can help these families by donating to their cause via Facebook or at their website, utahhomicidesurvivors.org. Welcome to I See You, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. I see you. Welcome to the ICU podcast. This is episode 75, I Am Us, with Jenny Taylor, widow to Major Brent Taylor. Man, I feel like it's been forever since I've been waiting to post this interview when in reality it's only been two weeks, I guess. I had the opportunity to go speak at a women's retreat in California, and as part of that opportunity, I was asked to also do a live podcast interview, and they flew in Jenny Taylor to be the guest. Not only did I love interviewing with Jenny, but I also love speaking to this group of women the following morning. There's just something special about speaking out in nature. Mmm, it's the best. Quickly, before we begin, there's something uh, that you need to know about this weekend. Not only was I flown out for this event to speak, but when this opportunity was first presented to me last summer, I remember I was at the splash pad with my kids, (laughs) they told me they wanted to fly out my sister, Amy, as well. As many of you know, my sister is dying from breast cancer, and she's a pretty huge part of my life. Amy was in the audience during this interview, and she and I had already made the agreement previously that because of Jenny Taylor's background and her story, it could be a little triggering. It could be a hard, difficult thing for Amy to listen to. So Amy and I made the ingredient that if it got too hard for her to listen to, she would just quietly get up and leave. Well, before uh, we started recording, I was talking to Jenny and Amy's situation came up in our conversation and Jenny instantly, she started tearing up and she was like, well, I'm going to get up and leave too then. She was like, we're both just going to leave you here. (laughs) So that's not what happened. I'm going to tell you what happened after the interview. Jenny and I have some similarities that we are both very devout in our Christian faith. We both found a lot of peace in it, and we're both members of the same church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm going to explain just a couple of the words she uses. For those of you who aren't familiar with the vocabulary, there are listeners from all different faiths and belief systems, and I love that about this space. So Jenny uses the word veil, and that means the separation between this mortal life and the next life that we both believe exists. A bishop is the leader of a congregation, and a stake president is a leader over multiple congregations. A mission is a two-year service opportunity where a young adult will go and serve and teach people about Christ and the hope that comes through Christ somewhere in the world. Covenants are promises that we make with God, and we often do that in the temple, which are beautiful buildings uh, you may have seen around where we go to worship and serve as members of his church as long as we are worthy to enter. We have to live a certain way to be worthy to enter there just to keep it a, a sacred space where we feel like the spirit of Christ can dwell. Priesthood is the power of Jesus Christ that we believe is on the earth as it is handed down through proper authority. A blessing 
is like a special prayer that a holder of the priesthood gives to another by laying his hands on their head, and they do their best to speak the words that come to their mind. They try to listen to what they feel like God would have them say. Last but not least, President Nelson is our current prophet of the church. He's our our leader here on the earth. We believe he is the mouthpiece of God to, to teach us the things that we need to know to be successful here, to be happy and have hope and joy. So there's your crash course. You're practically one of us. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Let's head over to the interview. Jenny Taylor, welcome to the ICU podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. We are in front of a live audience right now, which is super exciting. Can everybody say hello? Hello. And then they're going to stay quiet most of the rest of the time because they get a sucker at the end. We just told them. So that's what they're focused on. Jenny, will you start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, my name's Jenny Taylor and I'm from North Ogden, Utah, which is about 45 minutes north of Salt Lake City. I grew up there, went to high school there. It's one of those cute small towns in Utah that I thought I couldn't wait to get out of, but now it looks like I'm there to stay and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else now that I'm raising my family. Um, I went to BYU for a teaching degree and I have a master's teaching degree from Utah State. My husband and I have seven kids and that pretty much consumes all of life. And our hobbies are chasing them and encouraging them and sometimes disciplining them and loving the things that they do and love. And sometimes at the end of a long day, I just like to jump in a hot bathtub and pretend all the noise will melt away. And that's how I kind of handle my stress, hot water. So there you go. There are worse habits. Yeah, there are worse <laughs> it's, a, habits. it's a good one. So can you start by sharing us some of the reasons why you and your husband decided to have him run for mayor of North Ogden. Yeah, so it's so funny. We started, um, we met on a blind date right after my mission. He had served a mission. I had just gotten home from a mission. And from the very get-go, we just had this connection of patriotism. And so he, from the very beginning, wanted to serve in the military. He was a naturally born leader, but we never really talked about politics as much as kind of the military and his high school friends joked he'd be president someday, but a lot of people joke they'll be president someday. So anyway, he had deployed twice with the Utah Army National Guard early in our marriage. We had two little babies and were to the point where we were waiting for our third. We were, I feel like I was a hundred months pregnant, but probably like eight and a half. And he came home from a night school class. He was working on his master's degree at the University of Utah. And he came home, it would have been like 10 o'clock at night. I'm super pregnant and tired. We have these two little ones. He's just finished two back-to-back deployments. And he said, I think I should run for city council. I'm like, you're crazy because we're, we got nothing else to do. I think you should run for city council too. That's a great idea. And the way he first thought of it was because the city utility bill came with a little notice that the elections were coming up. So I don't know if he went to pay the water bill and decided to run for office or what, but <laughs> so he did four years as a city councilman first and just really found that he loved it, loved the local level of government. I mean, that's the grassroots of America. Everything that we love and hold dear really starts at that local level. And a couple years into his term as a councilman, he started to talk about, you know, maybe he'd make a good mayor for the next mayor. The current mayor was not going to run again. And I remember feeling just the same way I felt when he first said, hey, let's run for council. Just thought, we're, we've got enough going on. You know, we're, at the time he ran for mayor, we, I was pregnant with our fifth baby. She was born in April and he was elected that fall. So kind of that whole thing's a blur to me. But he was just very driven to be of service to his community, to the Lord, wherever he could. I think it's the Lord that guided him more than that utility bill because it just didn't make any sense. It's one of those things on paper, it doesn't make sense. And we've been had a lot of, um, maybe not a lot, but definitely a fair share of backlash 
a lot of people saying you're young, your kids are young, you're still in school, are you sure this is the right time? People, of course, question your motive. Oh, are you in this for the glory? Are you just a career-hungry politician? But he and I both knew the decisions we've made. We made, you know, guided by what we feel was the direction of the Lord. And he was good at what he did. He was able to be of service. He was really good at conversations with people who don't want to have a conversation. He could take kind of the real conflict, listen to both sides, help each side listen to each other. So he just found a real, a real knack for it and... So he ended up running for mayor, and it was a long and hard campaign, but he won. And then he ran again unopposed. So that was kind of the best victory ever was that after four years as mayor, nobody even ran against him. So that was my favorite election ever was the campaign nobody wanted to be mayor besides him. That's pretty special. Now for kind of the tough part. Will you tell us about losing your husband? Yeah. So right after my husband was elected to his second term as mayor, he deployed again with the Army National Guard and got a replacement to be mayor, set everything up to be gone for a year. Uh, he was deployed about 10 months when I got a knock on my door on a Saturday morning and there were two soldiers in full dress uniform and they don't usually just stop by to say hi. We found out that he had been killed in Afghanistan. He had been shot by one of the Afghans he was training. He was there as an advisor. Really the focus right now is trying to get the Afghan military to be able to take over their own security. And so it was an inside attack and, I mean, just a huge shock. Just shock. I, I can still picture myself that day, just, you know, the adrenaline, everything running. I didn't just lay down and sob. I think my body just went into sheer shock of how are we going to do this? How am I going to raise these seven kids? How am I going to pay the bills? Um, I mean, you just, you can't go anywhere with that. And almost instantly I felt, um, an outpouring of the strength of the Lord. And even as I, I have a notebook where I wrote down some of my initial thoughts, just trying to clear my head. And one of the first things I wrote was, you know, if, if this, if Brent's really dead, I can't fall apart. Like I, the kids matter too much. I, I have to figure out a way to do this. And I've thought a lot about those words because I wasn't thinking clearly. I, like I said, I was kind of in shock when I wrote that. And I think that was kind of the spirit of the Lord just telling me there's going to be a way. You're going to find a way. You're going to do this. And, and that whole weekend was just filled with people coming over. And he was the mayor of our town of 20,000 people. So it's a big town, but a small town. And everybody knew he'd been killed. He's the first soldier to die in action for most of those people that they had a personal connection to. I think a lot of us forget we're even still at war, you know. I think of the horrific days, World War II, when everyone knew someone that died in battle. But that's not the case anymore. So it sent a shockwave through me. It sent a shockwave through my family. And it sent a shockwave through our town. You know, literally turned our lives upside down. I, for 15 years, prided myself on being his wife, on being our kid's mom. I haven't held a job since our, our first baby was born, haven't wanted to. My pride and joy has been making sure he's really good at what he does. Like, you're an awesome mayor, and you better believe I'm part of that. And you go be an awesome soldier, and don't you ever forget that I'm part of that. And we were just a great team. But So in the first moment, and especially that first weekend when I knew Brent was dead, it felt like I didn't just lose him, but I lost my entire future. I didn't have a single goal or dream or ambition that wasn't 100% with him. Our future where we might live would depend on where his next job might take us. And our future retirement was whatever his career was. And I couldn't wait to be a missionary with him and serve missions in our old age and raise grandkids and, and all of those things. 
so I really felt completely lost. Like my whole identity just disappeared because what I'm, I'm a wife. I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a companion. And, and that just felt like it had been stripped from me in addition to losing, you know, my best friend and my, my partner in life and my stability in, in terms of how difficult life can be alone. And early, early on, probably the very next day after we got the news about Brent, uh, I received a blessing from a former bishop who'd been really good friends with both me and Brent. He had been our bishop when Brent had deployed before, so he'd been with us through this, you know, in a different way, but kind of the similar circumstances. And he gave me the most beautiful blessing in which he taught me, or really the Spirit taught both of us, that my purpose hasn't changed. And he even said Brent's purpose hasn't changed. You know, here he's, he's dead. He's gone. I'll never see him again. What do you mean? And I mean, at least in this life. And, and this bishop and the power of the priesthood helped remind me that Brent's purpose as my husband, as our children's father, as his parents' son, as his sibling's brother, as all these things, that eternal purpose didn't change in the moment he died. And my purpose as his wife and my purpose as our children's mother and my purpose as a daughter of God did not change when my marital status went to widowed instead of married. And, um, you know, that early, early on blessing has given me so much to cling to for now, you know, 14 months in thinking, I don't feel the same anxiety over what does the future bring because I've given up worrying about what the future brings. I know God will bring me there. I know Brent is with me every step of the way. Um, After a few months, I started noticing his mannerisms in me and I, I was doing things like he did and I inherited a lot of his strengths. Like I'm not a, I'm not a very positive person. I'm kind of, a worrier by nature and I'm kind of like Eeyore where there's the dark cloud everywhere and I picture myself hours after Brent's death notification in the living room with family and friends laughing I mean we were crying but we were laughing at the same time we were laughing and telling great stories and great memories and I thought I've inherited a sense of humor and that's a strength to be able to laugh and he would want us to laugh he wouldn't want me to just sit on the floor and cry all day he would want me to laugh and I feel like I've inherited his positive outlook. He used to drive me crazy by always saying, oh, it'll work out. It'll all work out. I just wanted to like punch him. Why do you say that? Like it's just magic. It'll work out because I'll worry about it for a long time and make it work. But, you know, I after, after several weeks and, and months of just trying to get the earth to stop shaking under my feet, and sometimes it's still really shaking, um, all of a sudden I had a thought, I am us. I am us. I don't know how it happened. I don't know how I went from being the cheerleader and the strength in the background to the public face of us, but I'm just, I'm us. I'm him, I'm me. You try to be one in your marriage. You try to be one as a family and one as disciples of Christ. And in a very real but hard to explain way, I am now us. And that gives me great strength because I have his purpose and I have my purpose. I have his covenants and I have my covenants. And together we can do amazing things. I remember a speech I gave um, right after we went to Dover Air Base. This is you know 24 hours, 48 hours after he was killed. We flew to Dover Air Base to get his body. And he came home in the middle of the night and before his body arrived, I was in the hotel room late, late at night and they had said if I wanted to, I could make some comments after. And so I sat down to my laptop to type some things and the thoughts just came, I mean, 
just came. I'm typing every word, every word, every word, wait, backspace, cut space, everything perfectly until I read it. And I remember almost talking to Brent in my mind that if he keeps telling me what to say, then I'll say it and we'll make a really good team. We can do some really good things together because he's got to stay right with me because I can't do it without him. So that fear and that anxiety of the initial, I can't do this without him, is kind of gone because I know I'm not doing it without him. You can't see him. I can't see him, but he's every bit as here as he ever was before. Sometimes that's what makes it so hard. It's not that he's so far away and I miss him because he's clear across the world because we've done that before. He's been to Iraq. He's been to Afghanistan. He's been to Japan. He's been to Korea. We've lived across the world before. Now we have to live across the veil and he's very, very, very close and I can't see him. And sometimes that's what makes it the hardest. Not that he's far away, but he's so, so close, but I can't see him. How has losing your husband experience changed you? I think it's, it's changed everything. I, have you ever seen Back to the Future in the 80s? We're in a different space-time continuum. I, I'm a different person. I feel like my kids are different. We're, and I, I hope and pray that as we continue to move forward, it's, it's better. And, and I kind of hate that, but I love that. My stake president right after Brent died came over and he also gave me a blessing and has been a wonderful man to counsel with. And he kept telling me that my best days were ahead. The future is bright. Your best days are ahead. And I remember being so angry about that. I don't want my best days without him. I don't want to live happily ever after without him. But like I said, now I've gotten to the point where I realize, okay, I don't have to live happily ever without him. He's here too. Okay. I feel like it's changed my way of thinking about what eternity is, about where the spirit world is, about how the power of the priesthood works. I feel like I could write books, books and books and books about gospel truths that I've known for 40 years that have been under a magnifying glass for the last 14 months. I, I view everything differently. I feel like I, I never knew that. I, I never knew heaven was so close. You've heard it. We all talk about heaven's really close, but no, like heaven's really close. And, and those who have gone before us really are trying to help us. And they really are closer than we think. And the power of the priesthood flows through me, which is mind boggling because I've never thought of it that way. I've made covenants with the Lord through the power of the priesthood in the holy temple. And I've always relied on my husband as our priesthood leader. And I've, I've turned to him and hearkened to his counsel and the counsel of the Lord through the counsel of my husband. And, all of that now has been taken to a new level where I know I have the power of the priesthood in my home. President Nelson even said it at the last conference, which was, if you would have told me that five years ago, I'm not sure I would have understood what he meant. But he said, you know, if someone says, oh, I'm sorry, you don't have the priesthood in your home. No, you're wrong. Yes, I do. I'm not a bearer of the priesthood the way Brent is, but I've made covenants through that priesthood. And I'm bound to Brent through that priesthood. And I'm bound to God through those covenants. And I can't explain it because I'm still mortal. But I feel it and I know it. And that's what gives me not just the determination to keep going, but the peace of mind that, just like Brent always said, it really is going to work out. Like, I kind of want to smack him still. It really is going to work out. <laughs> And I joke, but I'm not joking. My mansion better be good when I get there because he's got a lot of time to build it while I'm <laughs> stuck here on earth for five more decades. But it's it changed everything, everything. I, I, I can't think of a single aspect of my life that it has not changed 
and I'm choosing to trust the Lord to make sure every one of those changes is for the better, even when I can't explain that. And sometimes when I'm mad about that, I, I really believe that all things can work together for our good. Um, scriptures teach us that Liberty jail, Joseph Smith learned that all these things will give you experience and be for your good. Sometimes the mortal me hates that. I don't want any more experience. I just want Brent. I don't, I, I don't want to keep learning. I don't want to live on a higher plane. I don't want to keep doing this. But then I catch myself and think, really? You know, I, I read my scriptures in the morning. One morning I was sitting on my couch, got a giant, massive family picture on the wall next to the couch. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at my scriptures. I'm looking at the picture. I'm looking at the scriptures. And I found myself thinking, why did this have to happen? And I found myself thinking, I wish this never happened. And in that moment, it's like the Spirit of the Lord told me, but if this hadn't happened, neither would all the good that's come from it. That was a really beautiful, hard moment. There have been a lot of wonderful, wonderful blessings in my life, in my family's life, in my community, in my state. A lot of good has come from Brent's death and I have a love-hate relationship with that because the mortal me doesn't want everyone else to be inspired and patriotic and make sure they vote on election day because I buried my husband so you remember to vote. I don't like that. But the me that's really trying to be meek and really trying to trust the Lord knows that the mortal me is just young and foolish. And in, in those moments when the spirit is clear, I can't even tell you I wish this never happened. And that's, that, I mean, that's a very bold, hard truth because I don't know that I would ever wish this on anyone. I'm not saying I'm glad it's happened. Um, but my, my, my mind has been enlightened and expanded. My life has been so blessed in so many ways. I feel like my husband and my Savior have given me so much that instead of wallowing around about why this had to happen, I'm determined to make sure they know I'm grateful for what they've given me and um, going to get to work finding a way that the Lord can work wonders through horrible, awful things that happen in life. So it's changed everything. Short answer, everything has changed. It's an interesting pattern, and it's something I've seen in my own life. Uh, some of the darkest things in, that I have been through, yeah, I can never quite bring myself to get up at the pulpit and say I'm so grateful for this because I just am like, nope. <laughs> I just like can't bring myself quite to do it. But would I take it back? I don't know. I'm a completely different person because of it. Yeah, absolutely. So throughout your really intense grieving process, which was complicated because you also had a community grieving mm -hmm. as well. And so you also were a public face. And so that's a whole other bag of whatever. <laughs> um, you know, this podcast is all about how compassion connection saves lives. And we talk about what it means to really see somebody. Oh, yeah. Were there some vital experiences where you felt truly seen? Oh yeah, so so many times. So many times where I'll admit I'm a very stubborn, independent person. I married a very stubborn, independent man and we are stubbornly independent as a family. And so when, when Brent deployed and I had seven kids including a new baby and I needed so much help and we had a plumbing problem at our house that like tore the whole house apart. We had to live in, in a rental for a while. I needed a lot of help. And at first it was very hard. It was very embarrassing. Uh, I felt ashamed. I felt just irritated. Like, why do I need so much help? 
And then I feel like, like you said, those moments, a moment of great clarity came. And my moments of clarity usually come through a quote or a scripture. But um, most of us know the scripture. There's a, there's a verse of scripture in Book of Mormon, a prophet named Mosiah. And um, uh, he's, there's a recording there and from King Benjamin. He's talking about being in the service of your fellow being is really just serving God. We've all known that. Like, I'm the first to sign up on Sunday if you need a casserole. Like, I'm going to bring you a casserole. And if somebody's sick and their kids need a place to play, come to my house. I am going to sign up and help you because I want to serve God. And so serving you lets me serve God. And we all know that feeling that comes with being helpful and being useful. And somewhere in my mind, I feel like the Lord flipped the scripture inside out for me and taught me that when I'm served by my fellow being, I'm served by God. And pretty soon I started to see the lady at the door with a casserole as having nothing to do with food. And I started to see their compassion as this wonderful, beautiful, vulnerable thing where I could let go of my stubbornness. I could stop saying, no, I'm good when you ask if I need anything. And I actually got really good and I feel like I'm still having opportunities to do this. If someone asks if I need help or if they can do anything, I think of something and I give them something to do. And it might be a silly thing like, oh, next time you're at the grocery store, can you grab me a dozen eggs? Or a friend will call from Costco, do you need anything? I'm sure I need something. There's something I can think of to give that woman an opportunity to help. And not that she's helping me because that would be very self-serving and very selfish. But in letting her help, me, I know she's really serving the Lord. And I know it's really the Lord that's helping me. So that's been one of the biggest moments of clarity I've had is that there is beauty when we mourn together. The Bible says to mourn with those that mourn. I used to think that means like if somebody's sad, go try to comfort them. And and they're a puddle and a mess on the floor and you're just peaceful and all, you know, encompassed of everything functional so you're going to come mourn with them and make sure they're okay and bring them a casserole because you're fine and they're not but i've i've come to see that to really mourn with someone that mourns it hurts you too like as much as it's been difficult to mourn so publicly again our our community's very it's small but kind of big and it's been very public and as much as sometimes that feels hard or lack of privacy i've come to see their mourning with me They're not just mourning because they feel bad for me. They're mourning because their sad Brent died too. And even if they didn't know him, I I hear news of a soldier dying in service to our country and that hurts me. Or I hear the story of, you know, someone getting killed in a car accident and leaving behind a family or or they've struggled with cancer and, and, and all these things that happen. And that hurts. I think as humans, we hurt for each other. But usually we're stubborn and we're independent and we're supposed to be self-reliant. And so we tell people, I'm good, I got this. And then like in our mind, we're falling apart 100%. I feel like one of the greatest things you talk about this connection and compassion is to just let go of that pride and not be embarrassed and not feel like I'm being the biggest mooch on the planet, but to just feel like, look at these wonderful opportunities we're creating for each other to serve the Lord and to serve each other. And I've had a lot of opportunities to talk to my kids about this because, you know, somebody shows up with a blanket, then tomorrow somebody else brought a blanket, and pretty soon you got a lot of blankets. And it's easy for the kid to be like, why didn't you bring me like He-Man? I don't want another blanket, you know? I, I want Pokemon. No, 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 it's not about the Pokemon. It's not even about the blanket. It's about the compassion and the connection that that represents. 
people who don't know what to do and they don't know what to say. So they either buy you something or they bake you something and they knock on the door. But what they're doing is trying to connect and show that compassion. So that's been another way in which I, I view the world so differently now. I, I feel like I'm eager to find ways to let people into my life and to let them be part of my life and let them help. Even though by nature I'm a really stubborn, independent person, I think it's been really good for me to kind of let go of some of that pride. And 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 I just found it so beautiful when, when you let someone love you and let them show you that love in a way that you're open to receiving. I feel like it's so powerful. Um, we often talk a lot about... Um, Hey, if you need anything, call me. And we say, well, don't ever say that. That's the worst thing you could say because they're never going to call you. And so we tell the person who offered that that they need to really think and be prayerful and mindful about what they could do and try to like get lightning out of the sky to know what to say, which is great. And I believe God can tell us what to say through lightning in the sky. But also, if you ask me if I need anything, I could just tell you what I need. And that would save you a lot of anxiety and wonder and worry over what to do or what to say or how to help me because I could just give you a couple ideas. So it's been, it's been good for me to look at the world totally differently. And, you know, if we would all just let each other help, for one, we wouldn't all feel so overwhelmed because we'd have help. And we'd all have like that natural, beautiful feeling of love and compassion and the endorphins that come when we feel useful. Like, we don't want to be useful. I don't want to be the one always being served. I really do want to try to serve. And so it's kind of a two-way street. And I think as we learn to open up and let each other in, we'll find that be exactly what you call it, the connection and the compassion. You can't connect with me if I put up walls all over. No matter how compassionate you are, if I put up walls, you're not going to connect with me. So I can wonder why God doesn't hear my prayers or why nobody's helping me or why can't people just know what I need. I could just like open the door and be like, hey, you guys, this is what I need. And then you'd probably all come running and help me. And not because I'm anything special. You would do it for your friends, your neighbors, the stranger in your neighborhood too. You would. So anyway. So going a little deeper with compassion and connection, how has it helped you move forward as a woman who loves her country? I know you love your country a lot. I, I love this country. I love the people of this country. I love the history of this country. And I think you've nailed it. When you, I love that you call it compassion and connection. Like, do you feel connected to your past? Do you feel connected to the past of your, of your country or the past of your family, the past of your community? And, and finding ways for me to feel connected to this great history that our nation has, imperfect as it is, but find a connection to this great history of this nation, a connection to my late husband, and it compels me to want to connect with other people around me and find ways to bring out that good. I just heard General Mattis speak on a college campus. Uh, he used to be the Secretary of Defense. And he said, you know, if you feel that you've lost sight of what's great about America, then you need to find it. You need to dig deeper. You need to look for it. And he said, don't be afraid. He called it the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think that's true for American history. I think that's true for religious history. I think it's true for our personal history. We can look back in our lives and see those good, awesome things we've done and the great successes we've had. And we can look at those really dumb things we did and, oh, why did I do that? But we don't need to be afraid of that past in order to help move things forward in a beautiful way. And so I feel like my, my love for freedom and liberty 
connects me to the Lord because I think that's his way. God wants us to be free to choose, be free to even fall and then rely on the Savior to pick us up. And of course, it makes me feel connected to my husband who who died for those freedoms. Another thought I've had early on in, in reflecting on all of this, countless men and women have died so that I can be free. Not just my husband. I mean, he's like literally a drop in the bucket of those who have given their lives for the cause of freedom and liberty and justice for all. The least I can do is try to live in a way that promotes liberty and justice for all. Um, it will, for a long time, it will be said that my husband died on the battlefield. He died for this cause. He died in the cause of our country. I hope when I die at like 126 or however long I live, <laughs> I, hope, I hope people say the exact same thing. I don't need to die on foreign soil at the hand of an enemy to have given my entire life in the great cause of freedom. And so I, I think that's something we can all do. We can all die in the cause of something bigger than ourselves. And I think when we learn to live looking for a cause bigger than ourselves, it's empowering. It's really easy to get down and dark when you focus on yourself and your problems and your shortcomings and your weaknesses and the things you did wrong and all the mistakes you've made. That's a really dark place to be. And I think that's exactly where the adversary wants us to be, that that lack of connection, that lack of compassion leads us to darkness and depression. And I think that's the most dangerous. And so when we look within ourselves and find a cause greater than ourselves, we're able to pick ourselves up and, and be part of something big and something beautiful. And, and maybe not worry so much about the stupid thing we said or what we wish we could undo, but find a way to learn from it and, and carry it with us and move forward. We don't need to pretend it never happened, but uh, not be haunted by the mistakes we've made. And I think that's true for our country, for our families, our marriages, our communities, to be able to learn from the past and always try to move forward. I was going to say if, but I'm not going to say if, because I know there's people, including myself, that, are, that struggle with the idea of loss um, right. right now in their lives. What advice would you give to someone that is in the midst of loss, struggling with loss? Oh, I think that's the hardest question of all. What advice would I give? Because as stubborn and independent and all-knowing as I thought I was a few years ago, the Lord has really helped me um, learn that I don't really know anything. And so it's, it's hard to say, let me tell you how to deal with your problems because I deal so well with my problems. Because that's not even true. Like, go call my kids. They'll tell you. Um, we can know truth. We can know all these big picture things. And that doesn't mean we necessarily do a very good job with them in the moment. I mean, let's be honest. But I think if I were to give anybody maybe any truths that I've learned to share and, and you can take them and apply them to your life, I would say the first thing is you're not alone. I think I've made it very clear I believe in a God who loves me, a God who's aware of me. Um, I, I believe all of us can and need to find some sense of an inner power, your higher power. Um, you can call him God. You can call him whatever you want. I don't think we can make it without that higher power. I think it's important to know you're not alone. There are people who want to help you. And you might not see them at first, or you might not recognize it at first, but it might do you some good to ask for help, which is really hard, which is really, really hard. I think the first step is letting people help. And then after you learn to let people help, you can actually learn to ask for help and find just how amazing it is that people want to help. Oh my gosh, people really want to help. I think we're hungry to help each other. 
I think if I were to give anybody any advice or share any truths I've learned, it's that um, there's purpose in your pain. And if you can find purpose, it's empowering. So look at your pain, look at what you've gone through, what you're going through, what your loved ones are going through, and dig down deep somewhere. Find some sense of purpose. And that purpose might just be so that when the person next to you goes through this horrible hell that you've already gone through, you still won't know what to do, and you don't have a magic wand to fix it. But maybe you can just give him a hug and say, I'm so sorry. I think another truth I would share with people uh, going through hard things is you can't fix it. You can't fix it. And that sounds harsh, and that sounds mean, and that sounds cold-hearted to say you can't fix this, but I think it's incredibly empowering. I had another widow that told me uh, shortly after Brent died that I can't fix this. Uh, nobody else can fix this. Not even a new husband would fix this. Nothing can fix this. And at first, like, that just sounds so rude. Like, oh, you took away all my hope. But really, it just took away the burden of feeling like I have to fix this. I can't fix this, which means I don't have to fix this. I just have to figure out how to keep moving forward. And sometimes when we watch someone struggle, that's even harder than struggling ourselves because we want to fix it. We want to say, here's the money to replace the job you just lost. Here's the cure for the disease you're fighting. Here's the resurrection for your lost loved one. I, I want to fix it. And so we feel paralyzed because we can't fix it. And so sometimes we do nothing because we don't know what to do and we don't want to do the wrong thing. So we do nothing because we can't fix it. You don't have to fix it. If you want to come to my house because you're sad, Brent died, you don't have to show up and teach me all the doctrine about how I'll see him again. I already know. You could just show up and say, I'm sorry. You could show up and say nothing. You could just be there. And so I think recognizing you can't fix it is liberating. You don't have to fix it. We're all going to face hard things. That's been one thing that's kind of overwhelming still to me is I know that even though I've lost my husband, that doesn't mean like I get off easy for the rest of my mortal life. I don't know what else I might need to do or endure or face. I don't know what horrible, awful things people I love will face that I can't fix and I'm going to feel very frustrated I can't fix it for them but I do know and I think the number one truth I think I would tell anyone which is everyone going through something hard is that same thing my church leader told me in the beginning your best days are ahead and that's horrible and that's awful because I don't want my best days without Brent I don't want my best days after that but I think we really are capable of so much more than we think. You can do this. You can join the Lord and join people around you and find strength you didn't know you had. And because of that, your best days can be ahead of you. No matter how awful whatever you're facing is, you can still find a light. You can still find hope. I believe there's always good. And I don't, I don't at all believe God causes our problems. I don't think he sits up there with like a giant pegboard where he's like, hey, you're going to go through this and you're going to go through this and you're going to go through this and you have to suffer with this. But I think when bad things happen in mortality, he can take that horrible, awful thing and when we let him, he can make it beautiful and exalting. And he can say, hey, I know how to deal with that. Let me help you. So... Again, I don't know that I have any one-size-fits-all answer for anyone other than you're not alone. You're not alone at all. Um, you don't need to fix it. 
So stop trying to fix it. Just try to find some peace and in, in ways you can move forward and do what you can, but let go of the things that you can't change. And then just know that bright days are ahead. Even as hard as that seems, you can live your life in such a way that everything really can lead to a better tomorrow. And maybe that better tomorrow isn't so much for you because you can still feel like this tomorrow is not the tomorrow I wanted. But maybe your bad yesterday makes a better tomorrow for someone else. And in a way, isn't that beautiful? Maybe I don't really like where I am today, but maybe somebody around me is better today because of what I went through yesterday so we can both enjoy tomorrow. So anyway, I wish I had more answers. I wish I'd say, here's the list. There's four things you can do when horrible things happen and then everything will be better. But I think part of it is just letting go of that notion that everything will be better. I believe everything will be better. I believe things will work out. I believe in the long-term perspective, grand scheme of things, everything's beautiful. But I think part of that is that today might be really, really hard. You can't fix it and I can't fix it. And we're both just gonna get mad if we keep trying. So instead we might just say, <laughs> We're just going to get through this knowing that there is a purpose to that pain. There really is. I believe that. And it's not just a self-serving purpose, but my pain can maybe serve you and other people around me. Jenny Taylor. <coughs> I haven't talked for a while. Jenny Taylor. Sorry, not <laughs> <anything else. laughs> no, it's okay. It's just like when you first wake up in the morning and you like answer the phone. Answer you're the phone. Like, Hi. I've been awake a really long been time. I've been awake a really long time. Uh -huh. Yeah. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. It was an Thanks absolute pleasure to have you. And you guys did so good. I think I think you earned your suckers. I think Pass you did. So just to remind us that you're here, well, let's just give Jenny Taylor a round of applause. Amy didn't leave after this interview. In fact, she stayed and her and Jenny spent just some special time hugging and crying afterwards. And it was just this incredible experience where they really saw each other in this moment where their paths crossed at such critical times in each other's lives. And I feel like the reason I was asked to speak at this retreat was for my sister. Jenny Taylor is, she's special to both of us now. And I consider her a dear friend and we sure love her a lot. Also, something funny you got to know about this interview is that it was Jenny's son's birthday that weekend. <laughs> and so the retreat had him come and they made him a cake. And that night after Jenny spoke, we all sang happy birthday to him and Jenny filmed the entire thing and he was so uncomfortable. <laughs> she videoed the whole thing from the back. I was standing next to her and she was laughing and she's like, he hates me so much right now. And I think it's true. He hated her so much, but they got to go to Legoland the next day. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Such a cool weekend. Thank you again to our fabulous sponsor this episode, Utah Homicide Survivors. If you want to hear more specifically about the amazing work that they're doing, the lives they're touching, you should go listen to episode 71 because it's with their founder, Brandon Merrill. He is an attorney and he founded the Utah Homicide Survivors. They provide free legal work to family members of murder victims, and it is truly a worthy, compassionate work that they do that I am completely behind. You can help donate to those families in need at utahhomicidesurvivors.org or look them up on Facebook. Listeners, if you love this podcast, please rate it, review it, and share it. Next time is an interview with a CEO, a professional engineer, and a professional speaker. And that's all one person. It's Sydney Jakes, and I'm kind of one of her biggest fans. <laughs> My name is Julie Lee, and I see you. <laughs>